Today is uh, kind of a wrap-up day for our series on the master's morality. And uh, <laughs> really, it's kind of funny to see all these balloons uh, sticking. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Perfectly fine. Just don't pop them if you disagree with what I say. Um, but this is kind of a wrap-up day for us in our series on the master's morality. And I wanted to be able to uh, answer any questions you might have at the suggestion of Russ Moore. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, there are microphones in each aisle, and I want you to feel free to ask any question that uh, is on your mind, and I'll do the best I can out of the Word of God to give you a biblical answer. There may be some things that you're confused about that weren't in your own mind clear. There may be some implications or ramifications of things that were said. Uh, the things themselves were clear to you, but how those things are applied, you might want to know. There might be some things we never even touched on that are of concern to you, so feel free to ask a question and uh, just pop up to a microphone wherever and uh, who will be first. Don't be shy. If you don't want to think it's you asking the question, say I'm asking for someone that I know who wants to, you know, whatever. Feel free. Good. And you can just sort of line up behind them if you want to wait in line there for a minute. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I had a friend ask me. Um, <coughs> See, he not, understands. It's good. I'm not here to try to stump you, but um, hmm. in Isaiah 45:7 it says, "I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things." And I was just wondering, how does the Lord create evil? The answer to the question is that the Lord creates evil in such a way or the interpretation of that statement must be understood in such a way that it in no way offends his holy nature. OK. Um, the implication of that text is, I think, best understood when we realize that no evil exists, no evil is allowed to exist, no calamity, which is, I think, the major intent of the passage can exist outside the sovereign allowance of God. So in an indirect sense, by God allowing evil, God allowing calamity or disaster or judgment or whatever, um, he creates it, but only in that sense. Um, hell, we would all agree, is an evil place, right? The personification of eternal evil would be hell. And uh, Christ says that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. In that sense, he created the most evil place that will ever exist, hell. That is not to say that in any way that taints his holy nature. We have to maintain uh, God's absolute perfect righteousness and holiness. And yet we know that God, by some means, created hell for the occupation of evil. Um, in the sense of calamity or divine judgment, all divine judgment, which has an evil effect. In other words, when a man, is, man or a woman is sent to hell, that is an evil effect. God creates that in sending them to hell. In the, the gospel record, our Lord said, Fear not him who is able to destroy, bo uh, fear not those who destroy the body, but fear him, and that's referring to God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So God does bring judgment. He brings calamity. He brings the ultimate disaster of sending people to hell, in that sense, it is within the sovereignty of God to permit those things which are evil or calamitous as well as those things that are good. But God himself does not do evil, does not think evil, cannot tempt any man specifically to evil because he's too holy to look upon it as Habakkuk chapter 1 says. So we have to understand that personally God does nothing evil and makes nothing evil to happen, and yet within his creative tolerance allows these evil things to manifest themselves. And that's part of the mystery of the nature of God, how he can be all in all and everywhere and be untainted with evil. I think a good illustration of it is um, the sunlight can shine into a pig pen and be untouched by the slop in the pig pen. The sunlight is untouched, though it illuminates any evil place or any dirty, filthy place. The sunlight is untouched. And so God is untainted by the evil which he, within his creative tolerance, his sovereignty allows. Okay? Yes? Um, my question is, when we go back to school and we, when we go back to work and, you know, people are um, 
saying innuendos and, and you know, dirty jokes and things like that. How do we respond when we're alone and when we're in a group setting? Well, I think there's probably a very helpful passage. Um, uh, there's a lot of passages, but a couple of passages come to mind that I would comment uh, on in regard to that. One is in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, where it says um, in verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of building up, that it may minister grace to the hearers. I think that what that says to me, of course, is that there should be no and corrupt communication is a good translation. That's the authorized version I'm reading. There should be no corrupt communication proceeding out of my mouth at all. So the first principle in dealing with dirty talk is that I don't do that. I don't do that. That has no place in my life. None at all. Over in chapter four, verse chapter five, rather, verse four, in talking about sexual sin, verse three talks about fornication, sexual sin. And then verse four says, neither filthiness, nor dirty talk, nor, and the word really means um, sort of double entendre or innuendo, it's translated jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks, because no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man and so forth has an inheritance in the kingdom. So in those two verses, 429 and 54, we, we find the first principle, and that is that we repeat no corrupt communication. We speak nothing that is filthy, nothing that is um, um, double entendre. That is to say, it's a double meaning kind of statement that carries a sexual or evil overtone. No dirty stories of any kind are to be repeated. Now, that's, that's the prohibition. We don't repeat those kinds of things. We don't laugh at those kinds of things. We don't allow ourselves to be entertained by those kinds of things. The positive side comes in Philippians chapter 4 in an also familiar passage, chapter 4 and verse 8. And here is the thing that guards against that. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and any praise, Think on these things. It isn't just a question of what we say. It's also a question of how we think. And to think like Philippians 4.8 wants us to think is to be saturated with the word of God. Now, let me go a step further. So the negative prohibition is we don't talk like that. Therefore, we don't accept that kind of talk. The positive um, Admonishment is we think about things that are pure and lovely and true and honest and of good report and of virtue. Now, one step further. In the scriptures that I read you in Ephesians, there were two things that are indicated there as positive things. In contrast to filthy talk, he says, give thanks. And in contrast to filthy talk, that's in chapter 5, verse 4, in Contrast to the filthy communication in 429, he says, speak things that build people up and minister grace to the hearers. It's my own feeling that when anyone would come around me, and that only happens on rare occasions, people don't tell me dirty jokes very often. It'll happen sometimes if I'm among people that don't know me. Maybe I was playing golf with someone and uh, it might come up. But there are two appro three approaches. One, I don't talk like that, so I ignore that kind of talk. Secondly, I don't think like that. So the cultivating of my mind is such that that does not make me laugh. I don't find that humorous. I find that very offensive to me. The third thing is I will immediately endeavor to turn the conversation as fast as I can to somehow offer thanks to God and say something that will minister the grace of God to the people who are talking like that. Now, you talk about heaping coals of fire on someone's head. That will have that effect. But that's the proper response. I don't talk like that. I don't think like that. Instead, I return to you something which builds up, ministers grace, or offers thanks to God. Okay? Yes? Do you believe in um, a carnal or lukewarm Christian? And if so, how does that fit in with like the lordship issue? Well, I believe that Christians can be fleshy. Sure. Um, to say that, that as a Christian, we are um, obedient to the Lord 
as a pattern of life, I think, is true. I mean, we were brought in salvation, Romans 1, 5 says, to the obedience of faith. You understand that? So we're obedient to the Lord as a way of life. First John 3 says, if you don't obey the Lord, then you're not a Christian. That's, that's basically it. If you continue in an unbroken pattern of sin, doesn't matter what you say, you're not a Christian. So the pattern of life, the direction, if not the perfection of life, is obedience. But a Christian can be disobedient. And when he is disobedient, he or she is fleshy. Sarkikos. If you want to translate it carnal, that's fine. What I don't believe is that a carnal Christian is a sort of category of Christian that everybody gets into when they're saved before they get to the next category. In other words, there are those people who would tell us that when you're saved, you, you sort of go into step one, which is sort of a state of, of carnality, and then later on you get to step two of being a Christian when you accept the lordship of Christ. I don't accept that as biblical at all. I don't think it can be defended biblically. A carnal Christian would simply be a disobedient Christian. At any point in my life where I'm disobedient, I'm, I'm in the flesh. I'm walking by the flesh rather than walking by the Spirit. To put it another way, I believe spirituality and carnality are absolutes. In other words, at any given point in your spiritual life, you're either, in, you're either fleshy or spiritual. You understand what I mean by that? You're either walking according to the dictates of the flesh or you're walking according to the will of the Spirit. True? That is an absolute. You either are in one or you are in the other. Spiritual maturity is a relative thing. What I mean by that, when a person is immediately saved, I believe they can be spiritual. Do you believe that? That's an absolute. They walk in the Spirit. And all through our lives, at any given point in the process of spiritual maturity, we can be spiritual. That is, Spirit-controlled, Spirit-led, filled with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, obedient to the Spirit. I believe that's never more true than at, a, than at the moment of a person's conversion. I believe that when a person receives the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there is true spirituality at that moment, at that very moment. They're overwhelmed with their sense of sinfulness. They're confessing their desire to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great joy in their heart because of the transformation. They desire to obey the Lord. There's true spirituality. Now, that can happen at any time. What I don't see as a biblical teaching, then, is that there's some category of Christians called carnal that are in and of themselves some kind of group that haven't yet made it to a second level of spiritual attainment. And I would disagree with that. In 1 Corinthians chapter... Three, the key passage regarding your question is First uh, Corinthians three, where Paul says to the Corinthians, and by the way, we know they were Christians because he says to them in chapter one, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the day that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called to the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, there's no question these are Christians. No question. But then immediately he says to them in verse 10 of chapter 1, I beseech you, brethren, speak the same thing. Let there be no division among you that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So he pinpoints a problem. Even though they're true Christians, they are having problems with unity. There's division. Over in chapter 3, he says, I can't even write unto you or speak unto you as spiritual, but as carnal. I fed you with milk and not with solid food because you aren't able to receive solid food for you are carnal. And I know it because of the envy, the strife, the division. That's carnality. And you are walking like, quote, unquote, unregenerate people. So the Corinthians were redeemed people. They could have been spiritual or carnal, depending on whether they yielded to the flesh or the spirit. At this particular point, in yielding to the flesh, they were manifesting carnality. That means fleshy behavior. And the flesh is the, in Pauline terminology, the flesh is the unredeemed humanness. In other words, the, there is, a, there is a, a new creation in salvation, but that new creation, remember, is, is captive to unredeemed flesh until the glorification of the body, until we see Christ and we lose this fleshy body. So when you are carnal, it is to say you are responding to the impulses of your unredeemed humanness. So yes, I believe a Christian can be carnal, but I do not believe that the old traditional definition of a carnal Christian is a Christian with self on the throne. 
I don't believe that. I don't believe after your saved self is ever on the throne. You could say that, but technically speaking, after conversion, Christ is on the throne. The issue isn't who's on the throne. The issue isn't who's in charge. The issue is, are you obeying? There's no question who's in charge. Okay? I have basically two questions for mm-hmm. you, and both are involving the charismatic movement. I uh, first would like to know uh, how you feel about the claims that you see on TV these days of healings and other miracles and things like that. I want to know if you believe that from God... Or do you believe that Satan is doing the healing in the name of Jesus? And do you believe that Satan could heal to deceive? Well, there's no question that Satan can heal to deceive. Um, no question at all. You, you can go all the way back to the account of, uh, of Moses uh, and the gods of Egypt to see the miraculous power of, of Satan. Um, there's little question that uh, Satan can give disease. And if he can give it, um, there must be some ways in which he can remove it. Now, as to the the medical or clinical definition of all of those diseases. You know, we can't, we don't want to take the time to get into that. But it's very clear, for example, that uh, in the case of Job, Satan gave Job very severe disease. He gave him boils, some kind of serious disease. There's little question in 2 Corinthians 12, everyone would agree that Paul the Apostle was a victim of a disease brought upon him by Satan that is even called a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, sent to punch me. So we know Satan can bring disease. There's no reason to assume that if he has the power to do that, he also does not. He also has the power not to assume that he also has the power to remove that. I do believe that um, that there, within the realm of possibility in dealing with Satan, he can bring disease and he can remove disease. There's there's no question in my mind in regard to that. Now, whether or not he can bring all kinds of diseases at any time he wants and remove all kinds of diseases, I'm not certain there's anything in the scripture that indicates he can do that. I do therefore believe that there are some healings or apparent healings that are done by Satan. He is in the business of lying wonders. He is in the business of deceit. And we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see that particularly. Uh, His deceit capabilities are great. Uh, His wonders are profound. Uh, He will turn the world to himself in the final days of the Great Tribulation because of the things that he is able to do, Um, even to the point of, of making an image speak. Um, He has miraculous power. So I do believe that it is reasonable to assume that there are counterfeit healings, unquestionably. Uh, There are counterfeit healings. You can chronicle that in some pagan cultures with witch doctors. You can chronicle it through missionaries who have seen those kinds of things happen in the occult. You can see it in Haiti um, uh, with the voodoo dolls and the way those kind of curses that come through the voodoo dolls are dealt with to be removed and so forth. I do believe, therefore that there are healings today that are being claimed within the charismatic movement that are unquestionably satanic counterfeits. I also believe that God can heal. And I, I wouldn't for a minute depreciate the fact that God can heal. I do believe God can heal. I believe that it is, will, it is His will from time to time to heal. But I believe that's a sovereign act on God's part. I do not believe there's anyone in the world who has the gift of healing. And what is curious to me, and I've studied the charismatic movement for about 25 years, What is curious to me is that the the charismatics used to claim the gift of healing. They they would claim that gift. Um, As the examination became closer and as the charismatic movement moved outside of the narrow confines of traditional Pentecostalism, they stopped claiming that gift. And you will very rarely ever find a charismatic today who will claim the gift of healing. Even Oral Roberts has dropped his claim to the gift of healing. Even Catherine Kuhlman was, uh, would at the end of her life, deny that she had the gift of healing. You see, it's the only way they can explain the fact that people aren't being legitimately healed. As long as their movement was contained within the Pentecostal, the old line Pentecostal church, and very, very rarely got outside of it, they didn't have the publicity um, and there wasn't the scrutiny. I think they tried to carry on the claim that they had the gift of of healing, but that that is not claimed. Now what they say is, well, we don't heal. Catherine Kuhlman said this at the end of her life, and of course she has to be suspect because she's dead, which is a problem in and of itself. But she claimed at the end of her life that she did not have the gift of healing, and that's the only way she could explain, for example, the scrutiny of a medical doctor who followed up 82 of her healings and found none of them legitimate. Not one of them was legitimate. And the problem was not so much in the fact that the symptoms didn't go away. There were times when the symptoms went away. The problem was the diagnosis was never right. The the so-called claimed disease was never legitimate. And as I point out in my book on the charismatics, 
um, you can you can by psychological pressure heal people of psychosomatic symptoms. But I mean, if if there was such a thing as the gift of healing, and if these healings were legitimate, then it would seem to me that God could make a major point by just sending some of these people through a local hospital and cleaning it out and emptying all the beds. But that doesn't happen. Now, once in a while, you will hear a story about a, a real healing. And my feeling in those kind of situations is if indeed they could be verified, all they prove is that when God chooses to, by his own sovereignty, for his own purposes, he may heal, and he certainly can do that. Okay? That's good. I have also another question in regards to what you said in chapel a couple weeks ago about when, say, someone like to keep the Sabbath, they believe they're doing it unto the Lord. We're not to condemn them for doing that. The, I know quite a few charismatics who believe that their gift of praying in tongues is pleasing to the Lord, and they do it with a heart that says, I want to please God with this. Do you believe, how should we react to that? Well, be very gentle with them because it's probably what they do believe. Um, and in a sense, they are a weaker brother at that point. You see, most of those people are, feel that way. Well, all of them feel that way because that's what they've been taught. And they come, they come into a situation like that, and that's the way they've been instructed. That's the way they've been taught. And they see some wonderful people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and whose lives are very, very powerful for the Lord. And they do that. And so they learn to do that. It's learned behavior. It's learned behavior. Uh, uh, Call Ben and Kildall were two uh, Lutherans. Uh, they, they were given a grant by the Lutheran Church to do a pervasive study on the tongues phenomena, contemporary church. And their conclusion is very interesting. It's in a book on the tongues issue by Kildall and Colvin. Uh, very interesting reading in which they, they ascertain from all of their studies that this is learned behavior. It is dominantly learned behavior. You're in a, for example, I can, I can go from one part of this country to the other and hear people speak in tongues, which I have, who have never met each other, and I'll hear the very same words. The very same, they're not words, the very same non-words. The very same syllables uh, repeated. It is a, it's a cultural language that is learned behavior. And um, in that sense... To be honest with you, it's harmless. I mean, it, it, it's, it's as harmless as whistling a tune if it makes you feel better. But where it, where it comes into being problematic is, number one, when it attempts to be biblical. Because in the first place, biblical speaking in tongues was always a language, always a known language, a translatable known language, not an unknown language. Secondly, biblical speaking in tongues was never for self-edification. Never. It was always with a view to being a sign to someone other than yourself. No spiritual gift is for self-edification. The gift of teaching isn't for me. The gift of preaching isn't for me. The gift of helps isn't for you. It's for somebody else. All spiritual gifts are for others. So the idea that the gift of tongues is a private prayer language by which builds me up is foreign to the, well, it's foreign to the passage in Acts and it's foreign to the passage in 1 Corinthians. So the problem comes in when you try to square that with Scripture as to its intention. And uh, when I wrote the little booklet um, on 1 Corinthians 14 uh, on the issue of tongues, I went through 1 Corinthians 14, which is a real issue, phrase by phrase by phrase by phrase. And if you do that, you see the absolute consistency there in what Paul is teaching. Furthermore, the gift of tongues, I believe, was a sign gift. And sign gifts were in a period used by God prior to the revelation of the Scripture to identify those who were his messengers through a miraculous means. So I think what I'm trying to say is when you try to square it with Scripture, it comes up short. But in terms of a learned behavior in a private situation in a person's life, I wouldn't be too aggressive about denying them that. I do all I could in love to teach them the truth of the Scripture because on the one side, it, 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 it's harmless. Now, let me, having say that, say that, said that, say this. It doesn't always remain harmless. And I have encountered personally people who started out seeking something from God, namely some supernatural experience, and wound up being full of demons. I remember a girl who came forward after the service in our church and she began to speak in tongues in the prayer room and before the evening was over, there were at least ten demon voices screaming out from within her. And she had sought something more and something more had turned out to be something far less than she bargained for. So there is a danger in opening oneself up. I remember sitting in a meeting one time down in Los Angeles where some people were trying to get a guy to speak in tongues. 
and they were slapping him under his lip and telling him to say Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over until he finally lapsed into a tongue. And you could see the heat of the pressure, the warmth of the room, and the guy's eyes were rolling back, and who knows what kind of vulnerability there was in a situation like that. So uh, it does have the potential to be very, very dangerous. If you want a very helpful book on the subject of healing, Dick Mayhew, who's uh, now the pastor of Grace Brethren Church in Long Beach, has an excellent book on biblical healing in which he traces the whole issue through Scripture and gives a very, very balanced perspective. Okay? By the way, I want to express, too, that, that we have a great affection and love for people, as I tried to say, who are in this. As I say, basically, a lot of people have grown up with it. And for them, it's just a learned behavior. It fits. It's almost a cultural thing. And uh, in that sense, it's harmless. It becomes very harmful if, it, if it's used to twist the Scripture or if it becomes a sort of self-authentication of their spirituality or if it opens them up to demons. I was thinking about a week and a half ago, we had a message, Russ Bryce, a message on the mind. And how important it is that we as uh, young people guard against the things that are so prevalent in our society that can corrupt our heads and our minds. And I just, I was wondering if it might be helpful to me, I know, because I struggle with that, you know, daily. What do you do to guard against uh, infiltration into your mind of the things that are in society today? Well, I appreciate that question, Kelly, because I think all of us are, are in that situation. Um, there, are, there are several things that, that I think are needful to do. Um, the, basic, the bottom line, basically, is spiritual discipline. The bottom line is to cultivate a disciplined life. And I, I think uh, next Monday, or some Monday coming soon, I want to speak on self-discipline. Um, I am a firm believer in a disciplined mind. Uh, and that's something you learn to do. That's something you train yourself to do. I mean, I didn't always have self-discipline. I didn't always have a disciplined mind. But that is the key thing. You have to learn to discipline your mind. And you can do that by little things. Let me just give you some hints. I mean, how, how you are able to discipline yourself to get out of bed in the morning has tremendous spiritual effect in your life. How well you can discipline yourself to say no to something you, sh you have every right to eat, but you know it won't help your looks around your midsection or whatever. Uh, how well you can discipline yourself to turn off the television set even though what you're watching isn't bad. It's just inane. It's just pointless. And it's robbing you of something else. Your ability to train yourself to discipline your mind and to say no to things that you have a perfect right to say yes to, but you're learning to say no just to learn to say no is very, very effective in developing the self-discipline that transfers over to your spiritual life. Uh, I, I, have, I don't know that I've ever met a deeply spiritual person with a very well-guarded mind who hadn't somehow learned self-discipline. The second thing I would say is that your mind needs to be filled with the things that we heard in Philippians 4.8. So that there's so much rejection in your mind to what is coming at you that you throw it back. Do you know what I'm saying? You literally, it makes you, it, it, it's sort of spiritual vomiting. To give you a graphic illustration. It makes you sick. You can't handle it. You throw it back up again. Um, there, there are, will come a time in your life, if you're faithful in your spiritual disciplines in the Word, where the Word will so saturate your mind that you get halfway into a sin and it becomes repulsive to you. You, you start getting close to that sin and everything in you rejects that. Um, you turn on a certain thing on a television set and you begin to watch it and it isn't long before it repulses you and that indicates to you that you have cultivated a mindset that's biblical. That's godly, and that's what you're really after. So that comes from the saturation of the Word of God, and I would say it's as simple as spending time every day in the Scripture. There's no magic to this. You're a computer, G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you pump into your computer is exactly what's going to come out. It'll spit right back out what you've got in there. I'll never forget being with um, Chuck Swindoll. We were back at Grace Seminary one time, and he, he gave a, a, told a little story that was, yeah, it was a little bit, uh, I guess you could say... Uh, well, depending to the pure, all things are pure, but to the impure, all things aren't pure. So some people were offended because he made a comment that, I guess, in some people's minds created some images of sexual promiscuity or whatever. And he was just being funny at the moment. So anyway, afterward, we were standing down the front, and I was waiting for him. We are going to go to lunch, and this seminary student came up. And this was in a seminary. The seminary student said, uh, I just want you to know that you made me lust. And... Uh, Chuck looked at him and said, oh, are you married? He said, yeah. He said, how's your sex life? 
guy dropped his head. He said, I thought so. Sit down. I'll be with you in a minute. Another guy walked up. This is the same moment. He says, uh, I didn't appreciate what you said. That brought evil thoughts to my mind. He looked him right in the eye and said, uh, do you have trouble reading pornography? And the guy just gasped for air. Hung his head. He said, you sit next to the guy. I'll be with both of you in a minute. <laughs> you see, those were symptoms. He identified those symptoms that fast. The real issue was up here. To the pure, all things are what? Pure. They throw that right back. And that was just like raving a red flag to him. And he spent an hour with those guys. And they were messed up guys in seminary, but not controlling the sexual area of their life. Because their computers were indulging in garbage. So... You want to so feed yourself on the Word of God that um, that you reject that. I was amazed uh, when UCLA uh, played the game before they played USC. Who did they play? A week before. Um, no. Who was somebody they played? Anyway, UCLA played, and John Lee missed three field goals. Remember that? John Lee, who just broke the NC2A record with 79 field goals, he missed three field goals. He's never missed two field goals in a game in his life. He missed three in one game. Afterward, they interviewed him, and this is unbelievable. They said to him, how could you miss three field goals? He said, I didn't get to practice this week. Oh, come on. You guy's been kicking 500 footballs every day for the last 10 years. And he missed three field goals because he didn't practice this week. What a lesson. What a lesson that's transferable right over to spiritual life. Hey, don't tell me about your past victories. Tell me about this week. Where's your mind this week? Where's your mind today? Yesterday. That's why every day I ought to start with the Word of God. I mean, when your mind is filled with the Word of God, you'll kick that stuff back out. The third thing, and I think equally important to the first two, is accountability. Why do you think the Bible says confess your sins one to another? Because we need to be so open with each other that we carry each other's burden and we fight the battle together. I'll never forget a homosexual coming into my office one day. And he sat down and he said, I'm, I'm a homosexual and I'm sick of it. And he just broke into tears and just wept. You know, and I said, wow, I'm glad you feel the way you do. He says, I don't want to do it anymore. I hate it. I loathe it. I hate myself. I despise this stuff. But he said, I can't, I can't help myself. I said, how frequent is it? Every day? How many times a day? Many, many times. It's not uncommon for them to have a sexual experience a half a dozen times a day if they have to take drugs to induce it. <clears throat> the average homosexual has 200 partners a year, different partners. And how many times frequent? Amazing. The average AIDS victim, 1,500 sex partners. It's an unbelievable lifestyle. How are you going to break that? So I said to him, look, I said, I want you to write on a piece of paper between now and next Saturday when I meet you, every single time you have a homosexual encounter, I want you to write it down and describe it, and then I'm going to read them next week. I'm going to read them back to you. Next Saturday, he came in, he walked in the door, he had this smile on his face. I said, well, where's the paper? He said, I don't have a paper. I said, why don't you have a paper? He said, I didn't have any. I said, how come? He said, because I didn't want to have to give you that paper. <laughs> See? It's, it was accountability. And we just worked that way for weeks until he could finally begin to start a new pattern of, of life. So those are the things that you, you need. Um, I said yesterday in my sermon that Satan is a pirate who looks for vessels that sail alone. Satan is a pirate who looks for vessels that sail alone. You need accountability. Okay? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is a follow-up question to your uh, message on the Pauline principle of uh, liberty to eat meat offered to idols, but avoiding offending people who have associated links of evil with uh, meat offered to idols. And I'm always, uh, whenever I think of that passage as you preach on, I also think of this one in uh, Revelation 2.14, uh, a letter to Pergamos. But I have a few things against you because you, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
the, uh, the question I have is that because this verse is addressed to a group of people who evidently see eating meat offered to idols as a temptation in the context of this letter, what would you feel the relationship of this group of people to that Pauline teaching to be? You know, uh, you have the same problem in Acts 15. Because in Acts 15, you know, it says uh, not to eat things strangled and blood. And then it adds, or to commit fornication. And you have a, the same sort of strange mixture of something that is very definitely moral evil and something that is discretionary. I'm not sure I understand fully the intent of, of uh, what, you're, what you're asking. Um, but in the Jewish context of Balak and the illustration that is being used here, he says, to hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit fornication. He is not referring to something happening at Pergamos, but he is referring backwards to the record of Balaam uh, back in the book of Numbers. And at that particular point, eating things offered to idols was in a context of idol worship. So what he's forbidding here are two clear moral issues, idolatry and fornication. And the two, as we know, in the culture of the time of Balaam went together. Idolatry and fornication were part and parcel of ancient worship. So I think what he is saying here is that uh, the doctrine of Balaam is leading people into sin, just in general. And the sin that Balaam led his people into uh, was the sin of fornication and the sin of idolatry. But you don't feel that this uh, Jewish context is being updated in the Pergamosite frame of reference? No, I don't. It's not. It's just a reference to something in the past. Historical. Good. Good question. Who's next? Ladies first. <laughs> I have two questions. Though. Okay. Um, the first one is um, I'm getting ready to go back home um, for Christmas. And Where's home? By San Francisco, where oh. all the homosexuals live. Yeah. <laughs> no, not all the homosexuals. They just elected a homosexual mayor of Houston. Oh. That's right. Well, and did you election. see the paper yesterday? Very interesting. Uh, they're now demanding equal representation in all elected officials. So that I think within the next 10 years, there'll be gay quotas for all elected officials. Don't be surprised. Anyway, go ahead. Thanks. Um, That's everywhere. So um, in this in this society that I lived in up north, um, I was I was working with a lot of gay people, and so I'm going back to that job, and now all this information that I know about God's wrath toward them, um, they're my friends, you know, and I worked with them, and I always knew it was wrong, and but I never knew what to say to them exactly. How can I approach them? I haven't you know, seen them, you know, since I've been here at school, and are these people you know? Yeah. Are these people who know you care about them? I think so. Then I think you can approach them directly. Oh my. <laughs> you didn't want to hear that. <laughs> I knew I'd be responsible um, if I asked. I'll, I'll even arm you with all the tapes you can possibly use on what God says about homosexuality. Mm. I would be very direct. See, they know the truth. Yeah. If their conscience isn't so far gone that they're just about a vegetable, they know. They're, I have never met such guilty people in my life as mm. sinners who are deep into sin. They carry a load of guilt that is more than we can even conceive. And the level of perversion among homosexuals is so great. Uh, they understand that. They're, that's the reason they work so hard to defend their position. You know, they're desperate for self-defense. Um, that's why they're so violent. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, Halpern, who was the... Um, coroner of the city of New York did 60,000 autopsies and wrote a book when he retired and said in five seconds I can tell you whether a murder victim was killed by a homosexual because of the violent acts that they always do multiple stabbings multiple lacerations gashes uh, long after the person is dead he says he, he's not a Christian he's totally a secular man but he was warning in the book for people to stay away from a homosexual lifestyle just from a coroner's viewpoint so those people know the passion. I, I, I can just tell you, there are in the city of Los Angeles, I have police reports that thick that Bob Vernon has given me. There are uh, passion palaces in the city of Los Angeles where homosexuals hang out that have all replicas of the torture instruments of the Dark Ages, where they torture each other. And um, it's a frightening kind of lifestyle. As I said earlier, to have 200 different sex partners in a year 
is so beyond, that's so beyond even the conduct of animals that it's hard to imagine. So these people are deep, deep in guilt. There's no question about that. Um, anyone who lives with that kind of thing, I think, is deep into that kind of guilt. And uh, I, I don't see that there's anything to hold back with that. I really don't. I was, last night a lady came up to me and she said, I have a friend who's an abortionist. And he's been coming here. And he's a professional abortionist. All he does is, you know, 50 abortions every day of his life. And he, he's been coming here the last few weeks and he wants to talk to you. And he's, he's very, very upset. And once to see the word of God has begun to touch, then she said, what will you say to him? And I, I said, I'll just open the word of God and show him the sin of abortion. And go right for the issue. You know, that's what he wants to hear. That's why he wants to talk to me. So I think, you know, we've got to confront the problems that are there. Be sensitive and be loving. But um, I would be very direct. And I think if you can give them something, and I only mention because we have a little two-tape album, you know, on homosexuality and what God thinks of it, um, that says he loves the homosexual but hates the sin. They know that. They know the sin is a sin. And you're not telling them anything they don't know. Now, whether they receive it or not, isn't you can't make that choice. Okay? Thanks. Can I go to the other one? Or do you mm-hmm. want to? No, go ahead. Um, the other one is... Um Coming from that kind of life, I'm, I was just surrounded, you know, by all sorts of different sin everywhere, like everywhere. But and when I got to the master's college, it's like, wow, this is great. It's almost like heaven. And um, and now, you know, I'm, I'm going back out. Remember that for our next brochure. Will you write <laughs> We'll just take out the world almost and it'll work. Go ahead. And, and I, I get confused. I, I get out. I even go to Westwood, you know, and I, I feel just the sense of the materialism in the world. And then I come back here and it's like... Relief again. And so I don't know what my reaction should be, you know, when I'm out there. I just uh, Don't worry about that. I think the Spirit of God will, will work that in your heart. I mean, you're in the same tension that most people in the world are. And I'm not in that tension quite as much because I have an isolated life. I spend time in the Word. I pastor a church. I come here. You know, there is a certain environmental um, Christianity. Now, you, you're not all exposed to that. Some of you are out in the hostile part of the world. You're coming back into this, and it's a whole different thing. But I think what you've learned here and what you've gained here... God will bring to your mind and your heart and your remembrance. And if you just walk in the Spirit, open every day with a time of prayer, spend it in the Word, and then go out to take whatever the Lord brings, you're going to be great. Thanks, Dr. McCarthy. Okay, good. I think we have time. Just take these four real quick in the next five minutes if they're not too long, okay? You've spoken on Sunday nights about the unity of strong and weak believers, mm-hmm. and you spoke in chapel on gray areas. I see that a lot often that what separates strong and weak believers are gray areas. Sure. And frankly, what bothers me is that I've never met a weaker brother who didn't think he was the stronger one. And how do you how do you how do you convince them? That's what we call the professional weaker brother. How do you deal with those people? How do you yeah, I don't think we're that? talking about a weaker brother. I think we're talking about a legalist. See, a weaker brother is a, a person who is newly converted out of some kind of lifestyle that he can't let go of. Or that he, he can't, uh, he'll be offended under certain circumstances. So a, a weaker brother is easily identifiable. The person that you're talking about is the legalist. You know what I'm saying? Who is defining his Christianity in terms of all of those gray areas. And saying spirituality is your hair cut. Spirituality is your wardrobe. Spirituality is, uh, is the fact that you do these little evangelical traditions. But th- that's not a weaker brother. That is a legalist. Now, a weaker brother is one whose conscience would be wounded because he does not understand that freedom because he has come out of some other background. What you're mostly dealing with is people who have had no other background than five generations of evangelical tradition. That would really not be the genuine weaker brother, not the weaker brother of Romans and Corinthians who's coming out of either a strong Jewish culture uh, or strong pagan background and finds certain things just unacceptable. And there's a genuineness and a, and a legitimacy to that. Now, if you, want to get, if you want to get into how you deal with a legalist, you leave Romans 14 and 15 and go to Galatians and deal with them there. Okay? In the ninth chapter of Mark, it speaks about the, Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. Okay? Now, Peter, he, he never seen Elijah or Moses before. But yet, when he was there, he recognized them. Now, right. How could that be? 
That's a good question. I've been asked that question before, and the, and the text uh, um, doesn't specifically say. Some people have said that uh, Elijah had the mantle of a prophet, the special prophetic mantle, and Moses had the law in his hand. And so that's how he recognized them. Um, the answer is, I don't know. And the second response is, I don't care how he recognized them. Um, you know, Mark Twain once said, <laughs> Mark Twain once said, it's not the things I don't know that bother me, it's the things I do know. And uh, it's one of those kind of things where I'm not too worried. He knew who they were. There must have been some identifiable way in which it was known. I mean, it could have been that their names were announced, or how about that they said who they were, and that just not recorded. Right, it's not recorded, so you can't really... Right, so you don't know. But he knew, and uh, he was apparently right. The scripture indicates that was correct. But it's, you know, it was perhaps told to them. There appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It says in verse uh, 4, that conversation alone, is my belief, would have revealed who they were in that conversation with Jesus. Okay? Okay. All right. A friend of mine and I got back got together from back home. She lives back home, and we found out that we have certain sin in our life that we have committed to God, but yet I said that I wanted to be accountable to somebody because of it, because both of us have had a lot of trouble with this. And my friend said, well, I couldn't do that, you know, because I think it's because of pride. Sure. How can I encourage that friend to be accountable to somebody if that sin keeps going? You know what I would do if I, was in, if I were in your situation? I would just be open with her. And I think if you'd be open with her, you'll break that barrier down. That's very threatening to someone. I mean, if someone walked up to me and said, Look, I know you've got this sin in your life, and I'd like you and I to be accountable, and I'll point it out when you do it, you point it out when I do it, and we'll confess it to each other. I'd say, Whoa, wee. Uh, what paper do you write for? You know, uh, this could ruin me. Um, but, I mean, anybody would be threatened by that. Anybody. And see, you've been, you've been in this environment, and spiritual things and dynamics are happening to your life here that are probably not happening in her life. And so you're at a point of spiritual commitment that she hasn't yet come to. I would just be very transparent with her and share your heart with her and be very open with her and see if your openness to her can't open her heart to you. Okay? Thank you. All right. Okay, um, how do you respond to a non-Christian who's very curious about Jesus Christ and really wants to know before he makes a decision, but doesn't count that the Bible is fact. Uh, well, that's interesting. He, he's interested in the person of Jesus Christ, but doesn't figure the Bible is, is true. Yeah, he, just, he doesn't feel that that's a basis for a backup to prove, to prove Jesus Christ was really here. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there are several approaches. I mean, I think I would continue to talk about Christ, and I would approach him on the basis of his sin, see if he acknowledges sin. And if you can get a person to acknowledge their sin, you've got them in a very vulnerable position. Because the question then becomes, what are you going to do about your sin? What are you going to do about your sin? But the best, the best approach might be to try to show him, and if I can help you on this, let me know, because I have a tape that we did on this, a little book. Let, if, he think, if he admires Christ, then he ought to know Christ's view of Scripture. Okay. And Christ had the highest view of Scripture anybody ever walked on the earth. And there is, there is plenty of evidence in Scripture as to what Christ thought of the Scripture. So he's got a decision to make. If he thinks Christ is worth giving your life to, if he thinks Christ is trustworthy, and Christ says the Word of God is without error, then he's got a problem if he doesn't believe the Bible. Because either Christ is who he says he is, and therefore the Bible is what it says it is, or Christ is a liar, and in that case, he shouldn't be interested in him. You understand what I'm driving at? Sort of. Well, let me say it again. <laughs> the issue here is you cannot admire the person of Christ and not hold to the truth of Scripture because Christ lifted Scripture so high. See? Okay. So it's silly to say, oh, I'm attracted to Christ, I just don't believe the Bible. What you need to show him is what Christ thought of the Bible. And if he can see what Christ thought of the Scripture then he's going to have a terrible dilemma in his mind to deny the Bible and accept Christ. So um, if, if you want, I'll give you a tape on that. You can give to him and he can listen. I, I did a tape on what Christ thought of Scripture. And he's got to deal with that. In fact, if he's really open, if he's not just 
trying to get you to date him or whatever. I don't know who the guy is, but um, if he's not, if he doesn't have some ulterior motive, you know, uh, if he if he's really open, then give him some stuff on the truthfulness of Scripture. Okay. That's you know that's basic. And I'll tell you another thing to do with people, and people say, "Well, I don't believe the Bible." I have a sort of standard response: "Oh, that's amazing." You must have studied it for years to come to that profound conclusion. <laughs> well, no, I, wow, wow. Oh, now he said, I, I say, I've studied the Bible all my life. I know men and scholars all over the world who have studied this thing. And, and you actually have come to the conclusion that it isn't true. Have you, have you read it all? Oh, well, no. I said, oh, you haven't read it all and you've concluded it isn't true. Now, is that intellectually honest? Well, uh, I don't know. You know, you can reduce somebody to nothing, you know, with the right approach. Like the guy who says, well, personally, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I've heard people say that. You just say, well, agnostic in Latin is ignoramus. <laughs> now, what are you saying? You know, there are a lot of supposed experts who haven't really studied the Scripture at all. The challenge you should make to anybody is just take the Bible. You deny the Bible, just do this. Just take it and start at the Gospel of John and read the New Testament. Then tell me what you think. You don't need to defend the Bible. It's like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You open the door and let it out. It'll take care of itself. <laughs> okay. Great. Let's have a word of prayer together. We thank you, Father. What a joy to have your word and to know that there are answers there. We thank you for what you're doing in the lives of all of us together this year. What a wonderful year it's been. And we have so much yet ahead of us. And we, with thankful hearts, praise you for all the good things. Bless all of us during this time of Thanksgiving. As many go home, go back to see friends and family. May the radiance of Jesus Christ shine through us all. And may you be pleased with our obedience. Make this a good day. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.